Welcome to episode 26 of Chin Music. It's a podcast presented by Fangraphs from sunny but previously tornadic DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein joining me. It's a very Bay Area themed show from his luxurious accommodations in the beautiful city of San Francisco. It's Ben Clements. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. Tornadic, Kevin. Yeah, it was weird. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that when we talk about catching up with you because you went on vacation. I went on vacation. I went on vacation where you are. You went on vacation in the Midwest where I reside. We'll talk about that a little later. And talk about tornadoes. Um, Bay Area theme show. You're in San Francisco. Our special guest will be Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle talking about, um, and we kind of just talked about this all. I, I, I think they're the most fascinating team in baseball, the San Francisco Giants. Um, she obviously also covered the A's for two decades. We'll talk a little bit about their stadium situation, but she gives great insight on on why the Giants are good and, and what's going to take for them to remain good. Um, we'll talk about all the news in baseball. We'll talk about our musical guest, Laura Stevenson, who is a, a fascinating podcast connection and has a new album out that is getting incredible critical acclaim um we'll go through your emails all that kind of good stuff and uh ben you just got back from the midwest i just got back from the bay area did you keep up with baseball okay i did it, it helps that it's really interesting right now so i just want to yeah for sure um so it's it's thursday afternoon it's 1 p.m yesterday was the field of dreams game with the white Sox and the yankees playing in iowa did you watch the game i watched 80 percent of the game uh what? i just missed things for a dog walk so <laughs> um what'd you think you know i think it's a really cool idea to block off a night put baseball on national tv mm-hmm. and try to do it in ways that aren't just some announcers in a stadium that is regular. I didn't really connect with the field of dreams theme. It's, it's not a movie I enjoy. Um, but I do, like I said, like the idea. And I, and I think it's fine to be a cynic. And I think it's okay to be a critic. And, and I think that that's a good thing. I think there are aspects of this game in particular, even that, uh, you know, goes into a situation where, um, you, you can, it's, it's in Iowa, so we talk about the ridiculous blackout rules and, yeah. and how people who live in Iowa can watch nothing. They somehow and, didn't get to that on the broadcast. Right. We could talk about how it is celebrating, in a way, a time in baseball that was not a good time in terms of, of social constructs. Um, we can talk about how it's based on a book that has some ugly racial stuff in it. Um, it's it, And all that stuff. But I do think like just the concept of having... Especially in August, like it's, it's, you know, there's the, there's no more hot stove. The trade deadline's done and we're not in September yet. August is, is very much, I don't want to say doldrums, but it is kind of the, it's a grind month, right? Yeah. If this this is a horse race, they're, they're not in the stretch. They're just spinning around the turn. And to have something like, you know, this kind of situation where we're going to have this and, and there are ways they could have done it better. I thought, I thought it would have been a good idea to have, I mean, it's a, 
Thursday. Like have every day game, have every game a day game except for this one, right? They came um, close. I think they did a good yeah. job there. And, and just to like have this be what it is, it 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 did well ratings wise. Um, uh, Maury Brown tweeted something this morning. It looked like somewhere around six million people watched it. Um, I think it's a good idea. Um, I, the execution was seemed fine. Yeah, um, I for their it's not quite their first time doing this. They do the little league game. I think oh, that game right, is right, right. Great point. awesome. Yeah. By the way, I I get a kick out of that every year, and that's one that the players are really into. Um, yeah, that, 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 you're right. That is a good time. Um, we're, I'm going to read an email to you early, uh, cause we got an email about the game and it's a fun one and it's from like Bernie it. and, and Bernie says, howdy, I'm getting drinking, which is a great start to any sentence. I'm getting drinking and watching the field of dreams game, which is novel, I guess, but maybe the worst movie to game adaptation they could have done personally. Give me the Bull Durham game where every team is required to field the oldest catcher on their 40 man and start their hardest throwing pitcher under 21, which I think is a great idea. <laughs> or the League of Their Own game where MLB restarts a women's baseball league because that would be rad. Or the natural game where you got to bat some dude you found on the street clean up. Do you have any other good movie game ideas? Uh, I, I, I like all of these ideas. I think you do that. Like Angels in the Outfield, you have to start a 12 year old. That would um, be good. Um, You'd have a sandlot one where there was a dog on the field. <laughs> I think all games should have dogs in the field, one way or the other. Um, I, I think that would be the best way. Play to Play only with autographed baseballs. There's. <laughs> but so I mean that was the thing. Like I, it, it sounds like this is the, the field of dreams game is just going to be a thing now. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but I think it was either yesterday or the day before. Like David Ross in a in his Zoomer kind of accidentally he tried to walk it back and he yeah. failed, but he accidentally revealed the Cubs will be playing in this game next year. This is going to be a thing now. And again, like I I think it's fine to be critical of it. I think it's time to to, to you know to point out all of the things this game exposes that are wrong with the game, which are numerous. Um, but in terms of like being good for baseball, I think it's still good for the. I think it's good to have this kind of spotlight on the game in in this August period where. You know, you do still have. This is a good month for baseball in the sense that this is. It's you know, in a normal year where sports are on normal schedules, it's the only game in town, right? Yeah, I totally agree. I think you can argue with the the little details of it, and I mean, honestly, you can argue with the movie. I said, like they were interviewing the players on the field, and it was clear the players had been coached to say that it was a thrill, and Garrett Cole was just like. Trying to trying really hard to toe the party line. It was just like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure Andrew is just pumped to be doing this. Yeah, and the the dis, the boredom was creeping into his voice. I the, all that said, like you said, the idea is just good enough that I don't really care if the execution was slightly off for now. And I hope the ratings entice him to do more of these. Yeah, and I I, I think Eric Cole's bored in any game he's not pitching in. To be honest with you, that's fair. I think. Yeah, I mean, he was maybe a bad just choice. Just how Garrett's wired. Yeah. Um, let's talk about baseball for a little bit in terms of actual uh, baseball stuff. I wanted to start with um, Zach Scott made a mistake. Um, the he's still the acting GM of the Mets. He does not give him the title. They promoted some people to to AGM, but they did not give him the permanent title. So he's still acting GM. Doesn't feel like he's making a real run at it anymore. And he was asked a question about um the Mets injury problems, which have been numerous, uh, particularly with like kind of soft tissue stuff. And he, his answer kind of put an onus on the players 
in a way saying like, you know, the players have to stick to the plan. That's the player's responsibility to be healthy. And, and we can only, you know, our staff can only do so much and tell them what they need to do, but they have to do it. Um, and even if he's right about some players, that this isn't, I don't understand his, his reasoning for, for making this public. And, and I think we've gotten, I think it, it I, you know, we talked about the field of dreams game kind of exposing other bigger problems. I think this exposes a bigger problem in a weird way where I do feel like over the last, 10 years or so um, the vibe between the front office and players has been one of, I don't want to say animosity, but certainly two sides. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and not, and, and I think the good teams and we talked about, you're going to hear this. We already did the interview. You're going to hear this when, when Susan talks about the giants um, and that the fact that they have, there's a really good relationship seemingly between the staff and the players. And I, and I do think, I think that's, a, I think that's an impactful thing. I think that's one of the reasons the giants are where they are. Um, and, and instead we have these kind of situations where, you know, you're, you're, you're not just, you're kind of enforcing the, the clash between the front office and the players. Yeah. I also, if I were the players, I'd be not super into trusting the Mets training staff's instructions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they've, it's not, I'm sure that, you know, they've, they've tried to bring in better people, but the Mets aren't renowned for having excellent injury specialists they're renowned for making players injuries worse and i can just imagine how that makes it harder to stick to your plan without any questions it, it seems odd for the mets of all teams to be saying like why won't these players listen to our doctors well your guys doctors have been bad for a long time <laughs> the, the track record's not great is it yeah and um you know i it just it, it it makes little sense to me i i i don't know the, you said it's not you know it doesn't feel like he's necessarily doing the best for himself in terms of, of, of getting rid of the interim tag. I'm, I, I, you know, the, the Ken Rosenthal had a piece about kind of front office futures. He talked about the Mets. He also talked about the, the Rockies and a couple others. Um, and it sounds like the Mets still want to bring in a, uh, someone on top of Zach, if you will, a president of baseball operations kind of person. Yeah. Um, I just wonder if someone's going to want to come in and say, look, if I come in I, and that's the thing, like the teams have struggled with this. Like if someone, if you want to hire someone at that level, that person's going to want to come in and say, "Hey, I get to pick my staff." Like yeah. I'm just, I'm not just coming in and saying this is who I have. They might say, "Yeah, give me that guy who is bashing the players." Right? They might not. They're like, "I don't want that. I, I, I want to create a better environment for you know in terms of front office and players and, and that, that kind of stuff is 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 troubling." And again, like even I'm sure there is a player, at least one, who got hurt was given, you know, uh, proper advice and 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 a, and a proper, uh, you know schedule of treatment and and didn't do it right you yeah. know and then i'm positive positive that happened i just don't understand what you accomplish on any level by by speaking yeah. about it in that forum i think there's some chance that if it if one guy is way over the line then you can like talk about that guy specifically not in such pointed terms as what he said but yeah like you can talk about addressing that this is just like our players are lazy yeah, it's just, it, yeah, it's a shitty way to go. Do you think that there is real differentiation among teams in getting players to stick to kind of rehab regimens and? Um, like, I'm yeah, absolutely. I, I think there are teams with better training staffs. I think there are teams with better strength and conditioning teams, and I, you know, and people who kind of manage. I have a cat going crazy, and people who manage um, <laughs> people who make kind of manage injuries better. Um, for sure. And, 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 you know, I think we've talked about this before on the show. I, it's still kind of a black box for teams, but like teams have made 
crazy huge investments into trying to create healthier teams. Yeah. You know, to, and, and to try to do what they can to to limit IL stints and then to keep their best players in the lineup. And um, unfortunately, it's it's been too little result. Like, I, I don't think anyone has kind of cracked that code yet. Right. Um, you know, and, and teams have tried. I remember, you know, a very specific, very large, very um, man hour intensive project when I was in Houston. And at the end of the day, the findings were that players who get hurt tend to stay hurt and players who get healthy tend to stay healthy. Right. Yeah, that, and that was it. That was all. That was all they could really find. Not and no real pattern or form of function into you know when that tendency becomes not a tendency anymore. Yeah, um, it was just how it goes. It is very interesting because it feels like a place where you can sink in a lot of time, but it also feels very hard to know if you're getting results. Yeah, uh, and 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 you know, and if you know some, some guy hits a ball into the hole and the short stuff gets to it and he tries to kick an extra gear in the first and pulls a hamstring is that a failure of your strength and conditioning and your trainers or right. shit or shit happens right like the noise is huge yeah and there's i think it's almost impossible to know um exactly what that is um we had a couple careers well one one retirement and one dfa that might be the end of guys who um really good players players who've gotten mvp and cy young of votes um players have been to all-star games not going to be in the hall of fame but but really good players and i i kind of i don't know i'm always disappointed in how these things end you know like so chris davis uh, of the orioles retired um after you know numerous in- injuries and um an incredibly disturbing drop-off in production from his prime uh, it's easy to forget that in 2013 chris davis had an ops over a thousand um yeah. Hit 286, 370, 634 with 53 home runs and 138 runs batted in. I just want to say he drove in 138 because I know much people hate the RBI stat. Um, and, you know, 370 total bases, finished third in the MVP voting. Um, was never the same after that. Was never the same after 28. Um, but, you know, he retires, and I, it feels like that's all people talk about is how, is, is A, the giant contract he got, and B, how awful he's been for. Um, you know, the last four seasons and, 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 and he has been awful, but it's kind of like, it feels like when this happens, that's the focus as opposed to remembering how really good this guy was and how over, I mean, it was a brief peak, but you know, for that pre peak, he was like he had, one of the he had best a, 10 players he, in baseball. Yeah. He had like a four year thing where I'm just doing math in my head where he hit about, he hit around 150 home runs over a four year period. Um, and I, I, I don't like. I don't even know what my question is. It's kind of like a, more of a cultural thing. Like, why do we do this? Yeah, I, it's a shame with Chris Davis because he should be remembered for the fact that he really, you know, put it together out of nowhere. He was very much a post-hype guy and just exploded onto the scene in what was a really fun way. Like, it was just awesome seeing him turn into this like powerhouse after it felt like he just might never do it when he was with the Rangers. Yeah. And he was like this fifth round Juco pick in 2006 who like from day one, like clearly like, you know, even when he was drafted, he was this, you know, massive, like 250 pound bodybuilder looking dude who could hit balls 500 feet and struck out all the time. And he was, you know, you know, proto Joey Gallo. Yeah. And, and, you know, without the walks and, 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 you know, it didn't feel like he was ever going to really put it together. And then he did. And, 
Like he got a big contract out of it. Good for him. Make your money, man. It's, it's, yeah. It's, I, I, you know, I don't understand why we get these this focus on, oh, he signed that horrible contract for the Royals. He signed a great contract for him. Good for him. Yeah, and I think it's also, it's one thing if it feels like a guy really threw it all away. Chris Davis never felt like he threw it all away. It felt like he was trying harder he was trying than so he hard. To. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, if you, I, I kind of feel bad for him. And, and, you know, and then the other thing happened in Chicago where, um, after another really bad start, uh, Jake Arrieta was DFA'd by the Cubs, and um, he was horrible this year. You know, his ERA approaching seven, um, and you know doesn't doesn't help his how the public is going to perceive him by being an asshole. He's not a great human being. Um, like after his very last start, even on the Zoom call, he asked a reporter to remove their mask. Yeah, um, it just dumb shit like that and he was an anti-vax guy removing um, your mask is such a step up from or asking someone to remove their mask is such a step up from not wearing your own <laughs> and asking someone to remove the rest like that that's not even in the same room for, as you like on a zoom call um and, and other people on that call said he was perfect you know he wasn't muffled always perfectly clear um and it's you know kind of bruce levine who's you know been a chicago baseball figure for i don't know 40 years or something you know and and it's just just an asshole move, but it's, again, but it was all focused on well, Jake Arrieta was awful this year. Yeah, he was. He also had one of the best seasons of all time in 2015 with the Cubs. Definitely um, one of the best second halves. Yeah, um, you know, finished the year with a 177 ERA, won the Cy Young. Um, I'm going to say, I'm just going to say because it makes people mad. Won 22 games. Um, you know, he was unbelievably remarkable on the stretch, like you said, and for a long time, this was a really good pitcher and and you know another guy who it took it took a while you know he he you know was a, a fifth round pick out of tcu um never quite put together with baltimore went to the cubs and and, and everything suddenly clicked for him um went to phillies for, for three years with middling results and 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 was clearly trending down and 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 you know kind of hit rock bottom this year but another guy talked about how bad he was this guy was uh, again like for a while it was a short while. He was the the best pitcher in baseball for, yeah, for a, a, a solid run. Nine earned runs in the second half of 2015. How many starts is that? It's 107 innings. Mm. And let's see, how many starts? I don't actually see a game started on here. I was looking at some splits. But 107 innings, nine runs. That's uh, that's good. And I, I have no idea if Jake Arrieta wants to pitch again. I don't know if anyone would, would want him on his team. It's one of those weird situations where... Um, if he wants to pitch again, and again, I don't know if he does, like just kind of his jerkishness is not going to help him get a job. Yeah. I, like if he was this great dude and wanted to pitch again, I'm sure someone would go, yeah, come on, go to AAA, see if you can figure it out. But I, I don't think people even want him around it sometimes. I am very curious to see how the Cubs will handle, like, Jake Arrieta was a great Cub for a Cubs team that won the World Series. Yeah. And I don't know how they're going to handle the end of his time on the Cubs because when they brought him back it was you know well celebrate it was celebratory it was and I don't know if it's going to be whereas I think the Orioles will be very celebratory about Chris Davis's career and should be and should be I totally agree I mean and again like even during his struggles like I, I don't know anyone who wasn't rooting for him he was such a great he, he, he handled it with 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 grace and dignity he was very transparent and open with what he was going through um and it was hard not to root for him to pull out of it. He never did, but like I think everyone wanted him to. Who do you think is a better pitcher right now, Jake Arrieta or Chris Davis? <laughs> I'm gonna go with Jake Arrieta. <laughs> I think that's fair. 
Davis has a three ERA. Uh, yeah, you're right. He, Lifetime. He, he had a good arm. He had a good arm. Um, let's talk about a, a disturbing story that came up last week. Um, and I think I think it's very important to start this by saying this is not done a done deal yet. I think it's very important to say that. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's me being cautiously optimistic, which I can be guilty of being sometimes for all the wrong reasons. But it was reported that Major League Baseball is in negotiations with Barstool for a uh, what sounded like a weekly uh, broadcast of games with a gambling focus. Um, obviously, you know, we've talked in the past about Major League Baseball's involvement with gambling. Um, I am. It's not the kind of thing I lose sleep over or get worked up over. I just don't care. Um, and I think some of that comes from my just general thoughts about vices should be legal. And if people want to gamble, they can gamble. Um, but if you're going to do this, my big, the bigger issue here is Barstool. Pick anyone but Barstool, yeah. Right. So Barstool is obviously a gigantic brand. Um, their founders and people have made hundreds of million dollars being Barstool. Um, they have a gigantic following. Um, they also trade frequently uh, in uh, misogyny, racism, uh, Islamophobia, anti-LGBTQ things. General um, xenophobia. Yeah, general xenophobia. They're not. It's not a good thing, and they're bad. They're bad people. Period. And and you know, if you listen to this and you follow Barstool and you want to send those stoolies after me, I don't give a shit. And um, I'm here too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're they're shit. They're shitheads. Real giant shitheads. And um. And I again, like the cautiously optimistic part of me wondered if like this got out there. Uh, I think Andrew Marchman broke it, and he covers sports media. And I wonder if they they sent this out as like a flare. I think it's, to see to see what the reaction would be. I think that's very likely. Um, and maybe and, and I mean, look, a, some sort of weekly broadcast with with a gambling focus is surely going to happen. It's, it's um, inevitable. I'm but maybe it'll just be with yet. right. Maybe it'll just be like with DraftKings, or I mean, I mean, look, I mean, it's Bally Sports. Maybe it'll just be with Bally's, right? NBCSN. They've been. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you know they they have their whole NBC Sports Edge where they're trying to chain the pivot from fantasy into gambling and that seems like something they could buy for their network for their television package and even the network mlb network now has a gambling show with these two super annoying dudes um i didn't even realize this was a show like i thought it was just go one off i thought it was just like hey we'll go to the gambling guys for three minutes but they're on for half an hour and the, and the, and like acting with the utmost confidence on what you should gamble on in baseball. I turned and, um, that on because Sporer did a hit on it. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Maybe I'll keep watching it. And then right after, I was like, I'm not going to keep watching this. <laughs> and um, But, but the, the bigger problem here is is, is Barstool. And, and so you think it's quite possible that they just sent it out. Now, they, now they, to see what the feedback is, the feedback obviously was um, very bad. You yeah. know, I, it's you think it's possible they were just doing that to see if the feedback would be really bad. It seems to me like, look, you can accuse baseball of being out of touch, and we have already with the Field of Dreams thing. <laughs> and it is, right? I'm accused. Baseball is out of touch. Yeah. And I, it, it's quite possible that Rob Manfred knows none of this and is just looking at, at an Excel spreadsheet of how much money they'll make. Right. But there's no way that someone didn't say, hey, let's just let's just see what people's reaction is. 
because right. Barstool is a controversial thing. Like, we just look at Twitter trends and they get very positive and negative trends. So maybe we should just float an idea and see what people think. There's, I think there's very little chance that they were going to announce something like this without floating a trial balloon before it was done just to, to see if people destroyed them. And, yeah. mm-hmm. it, um, and, and so if you're that person, please keep destroying them so this doesn't happen because this would be really bad. It really um, doesn't make that much sense to me. No, like, like those assholes just don't need any any sort of more exposure than they already have. And it's not like the world is hurting for places that are willing to talk about gambling, like we were just talking about. It's, yeah, there's a million places you could go for a gambling broadcast. And not only that, but you know, ESPN tried a barstool show, and what it lasted one week. I I vaguely remember. Did it fail because it, people weren't watching, or did it fail because something? <laughs> it failed happened? because in the first week they said about five things that ESPN had to apologize for. Oh, okay. And then they just said, "I think we're not going to do this anymore." Yeah, I just can't imagine. And 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 like they're proud of it, and and it's just kind of. And I'm pretty sure like their main dude got banned from Twitter. Like he's in, in like that's how bad he's been. It's hard to get banned from Twitter. It is. Um, you know, I, for for being an asshole, like I don't understand why you'd want to partner with these people. When, yeah. Again, you could have a, you could have a totally put the put the two annoying guys from LB Network on a show. Yeah, like. I think Talk about stuff. if ESPN won't do something because it feels unsavory for them, they're not paragons of virtue. They're mm. doing it because it, the money doesn't make sense. So if they don't think the money makes sense, maybe you should uh, take a look into it. Yeah, and and I I, I there's plenty of avenues for them. Um, but I, I I don't think this is necessarily going to happen just because they said they're in talks. I, and I do think this was they'll still they'll hear the feedback. So keep feeding back if yeah. I, I guess is the best way to put it. Um. You know, we talked earlier about August being kind of the the run up to September. Um, <laughs> deep thoughts, deep thoughts. Uh, what have you been paying attention to, like the most, in, in, as far as baseball itself? The NL West, really. Um, it's fun. It's very fun, and the fact that the wild card game is now much more punishing than it was when it was one wild card, I think, makes it a lot more fun. Um, what do you what do you think about the whole Tatis thing? Um, you know, he's coming back and they're supposedly moving him to the outfield. I don't really get it. Like, I don't understand if that's really less strain on him or not. I kind of I kind of lean on the experts, but to me, I'm like, man, he's going to dive for a ball and something bad's going to happen. Hey, Bryce Harper made it an entire season without diving for a single baseball. I think <laughs> well, that's that's a very good point. You can just do that. I mean, it's going to make him a it's bad the, the, Al- the Albert Bell outfield model. Yeah, I I get the idea behind it, which is that Tatis is not an overwhelmingly good infield defender. He's a bad infield defender at the moment. Not because he doesn't have the tools, but because he doesn't have the consistency. Right. He, he's, he, he makes spectacular yeah. plays, but when you add it all up, it, it's not great. And his actions are very like sudden and powerful and dynamic and stressful on his body in the infield. He He's not, you know, the, the smooth footwork and doesn't make many errors, but doesn't have range. He's got all kinds of range. He throws himself into the ground with a plum, and then he throws balls away. I, I think that you could say to yourself, we really want his bat in the lineup. We can't really have him play shortstop, because um, I'm just afraid he's going to hurt himself, and he's not really... like We'd rather have Cronenworth play shortstop anyway. If you're going to hide him somewhere, like I get why you do the outfield. Man, how much is how much is, how much are the Padres wishing that they sold the DH this year? Right? It would be... I mean, they've already been wishing that. They just have a lot of right. a lot of batters they can't quite shoehorn in. I th- 
I don't think it's going to be a long-term thing for him, but I understand why they're doing it. I do wonder, like you, whether they can get him to not dive for balls because that that's the worry, right? I don't. Yeah, boy, that's not the kind of player I could see. That, that that's a tough. I think that's a tough sell for him because I don't think he knows how not to. I think Bryce Harper knows, knows how not to. I'm not sure. <laughs> Fernando Tatis knows how not to. Yeah, Bryce Harper like, is better. At, well, also Bryce Harper was making a business decision. He. It's no. I'm. I'm not. I'm not. Believe me. I'm not. I'm saying it's a good thing that yeah. Bryce Harper. Knows I'm just saying Tatis. To. He has the money now. Harper like. Harper plays pretty hard, and if you told him, hey, if you play hard, you might not make $300 million. If you told me that, I, I think I could pull up. But, but even like, yeah, but it, I, I mentioned Albert Bell, who it was one of my favorite players back in the 90s. And Albert Bell, like in a 7-2 to game, and a guy hit one of the gap, he would pull up. And, yeah, it's a double. Whatever. I'm going to get it and throw it in. And and go, oh, and I go, yeah, but Albert's playing 162 games a year. Right, right. He's not that guy. He's, he's going to go. That's ah, a double. I'm going to pick it up and throw it in. I'm playing tomorrow. You know, and I, yeah. I, I thought it was, it was smart. It is smart. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you. Tatis is not that guy. It does seem like maybe they should just shut him down. Like how how much they're really gaining from this versus mm-hmm. what they're risking. And I think if they want to bring him back, what they're doing makes sense. But I would be very tempted to just say he's 22. He's great. Let's let his shoulder heal up for an offseason. Right. And I I don't know how you weigh whether or not to do that. And obviously he is not telling them, hey, I just want to rest up and play next season. Um, the other division I'm playing, uh, these become a lot of fun, obviously, is the American League East, where um, the Red Sox have kind of gone to the sewer a little bit. Um, the Yankees and Blue Jays both made big moves at the end of July and are playing well. Um there's currently four teams in that division projected to win 90-plus games. Uh, I think this one could be a lot of fun as well. Yeah. Uh, the Rays have made it a little bit less fun just by being consistently excellent. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I still don't understand it. It's another I never do. another uh, addition of... I, I never yeah. do. But it's... I I think that both wild cards are going to come from this division. And mm-hmm. It's just going to be an absolute slugfest to see who they are. The A's I mean, are really, interesting. That was going to say, like the A's, the A's are what two out right now, and uh, one and a half out, and so, uh, I, I mean, they're both they're projected to win ninety plus games too, and it feels like one of those teams will make the wild card. Yeah, I mean, I just keep being proven wrong, but I just don't think the A's have, especially in the in the aftermath of Loriano getting suspended, they just feel light to me. Mm-hmm. And I mean. They're on a like they're on a tear, and so maybe I'm yeah, wrong. they're 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 similar to the Rays, where I think they consistently kind of outplay what you think they'll be. Yeah, but I I also just find the AL West race a little bit less interesting because three of the teams are just dead. They're just not. It's not happening. Right. Whereas in the AL East, it's just a somehow it's a slugfest, but they're all going to win ninety games anyway. Well, they have to play each other a lot too, which is going to make for even more fun. Yeah. Hey, the Mariners are still six games over 500. I think that's impressive. I think the Mariners are sneaky good. Like, they're not, it's not playoff good, but they're sneaky good. Yeah. And I, I think I said that, and I said that in April, and it's a pretty good team. I have been watching Abraham Toro and uh, Kendall Graveman because I, I just find that interesting. Just Toro's been great for him. Toro's been awesome. Graveman um, has pitched, let's see. He's uh, been very good for Five him, innings yeah. for Houston and not allowed any runs, so that's good. Um, um, everyone's winning. Yeah. Uh, Toro's hit 364 with a, an OPS over a thousand. He's been fantastic. Um, and my cat's losing his mind again. How um, this is a 
uh, maybe a previous life question, but is Abraham Toro like as good as I always think he's going to be? And he's just been kind of blocked and not. Yeah. Like the, 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 his, his minor league performance, both in terms of, of kind of back of the baseball card statistics, as well as, as, as kind of the underlying data always suggested that this is a very real big league bat. Um, he was, uh, during my time with Houston, a, a constant subject in trade talks. Teams always asked for him. Um, and, and during my time, he was always kind of a, a, a no go. Like it was never enough to get him. Um, but he was kind of always blocked in his best position is third base and the Astros of Alex Bregman. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, I do think getting, just getting him consistent ABs and having him in the lineup every day is, is a real, real factor in what we're seeing here. I, I look, he's not a 360 hitter, but I think it's a legitimate, <laughs> he's not a 360. Hitter. Right. So it's, it's a, it's a legitimate, you know, WRC plus over a hundred yeah. major league hitter, you know, um, and, and I think he was a really good acquisition. I, I do go back to that. You know, we mentioned that Ken Rosenthal piece about future front offices. He also brought up Seattle um, and, and, and like how much of a leash does DePoto have at this point, which I thought was interesting. Cause you know, obviously that, that grape and Toro trade um, was a controversial one in the immediacy. Um, I, I know they were hot as shit at the time, and but still I think their chance to get in the playoffs were really small. His at the time. big issue was that he didn't trade for Diego Castillo first. Right. Like, yeah, I, it's an order of operation problem. The Rays would have made that trade. They, they love not paying people arbitration salaries. <laughs> they were champing at the bit to make that trade and doing it in the opposite order. I feel like caused him a lot more problems because he got the better closer. I think if you predict going forward. Yeah. I mean, Cast- yeah. And Castillo's had, you know, um, his velocity did, did dip over the last month or so. Um, but, but, you know, he's thrown six innings. He's, he did blow a game, but he's allowed one hit in six innings. It was yeah. a big hit, but he's allowed one hit in six innings. Um, and if you and, said, Hey, we're picking up Diego Castillo, you know, for the stretch run right. and that makes Graveman kind of surplus. So we think we can pick up a bat. We really need bats. Then it's like, Oh wow. Like we're upgrading the team in multiple places. Yeah. And a bat that's going to be there. Right. You know, um, I, I, I thought it was a perfectly fine trade, but I, I do wonder I don't. I have no. I have no sense of how the ownership group views Depoto and his group there. Yeah, it it um, does feel like one of these uh, perpetual rebuild kind of places. Right, right. We're there. We're almost. We're we're always going to win. It, it you know they kind of get stuck winning eighty games every year. It's a bad place to be. Yeah, they're kind of under, like un, under the current rule set. The church of the long run, where they're like, ah, whatever. Like you know, we've got we've got a core coming up, but they've had a core coming up for a little bit now. A long time. Um. So we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Susan Slusser about the fascinating San Francisco Giants, as well as a little bit about Oakland. Um, you'll listen to some music from Laura Stevenson, and we'll be right back. We all spill out of the earth. Make it like sick birds, uncomfortable with words.
dust from the cars and the cuss and the halls and the trucks and the shards and the spoiling stars. My memories. Back to the podcast, special guest time. Our special guest was the beat writer uh, for the Oakland Athletics for over two decades for the San Francisco Chronicle and has transitioned this year to covering the, I'm going to say the most interesting team in baseball this year, the San Francisco Giants, and joining us from her luxurious accommodations in the city of San Francisco, it's Susan Slusser. Susan, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys? We are doing just fine. Um... Did you think when you watched this team, obviously, you know, you were you saw this team during spring training, you saw what they did in the offseason, uh, you saw what was coming together when spring training broke. If I told you that on August 13th, this team would be in first place ahead of the Dodgers and the Padres, how shocked would you be? I thought that they would contend at least into, you know, early September, but I certainly didn't think that they would be five games up on the Dodgers in mid-August. Uh Still plenty of season left to play, but they've established that this is a really, really good team. Uh, on paper, you still go like, how are they doing this? And they probably don't have as much talent as the Dodgers, the Padres, uh, but it's working. Uh, they have something that is clicking. Uh, even some of the areas where you think like, mm, that's a concern, say starting pitching depth, they've somehow made everything work. And they've done that throughout the year. They've, uh, it's a combination of a lot of things from incredibly savvy off-season moves by the front office, a lot of really good in-season moves by the front office to superb coaching and a team that seems like it plays together very unselfishly. That's We hear that a lot this year is selflessness, unselfishness. And, and I got to say that with so many guys playing different roles and limited roles, uh, or in say the case of Buster Posey, not playing as much as maybe they're used to, uh, that that is very much what we're seeing. It's a, a good sort of, I know numbers people don't necessarily love the concept of chemistry, but as shorthand, it's uh, as good as clubhouse chemistry as I've ever seen and all the players say the same thing and it, it, talking to other teams they there's like almost like a paranoia around the Giants that they kind of know something that other teams don't 
Um, I know one team that's specifically trying to reverse engineer how they put their lineups together and thinking there's far more than just platoons going on here. Um, do you think that they're, they have some sort of, you know, extra advantage due to some sort of more advanced thinking, if you will, as far as not, you know, you talked about you know, how they're using players, but in how they are using players, they seem to be doing it better than anybody. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. Um, interestingly, I think Gabe Kapler seems as if he has more leeway when it comes to the lineup and in-game moves than maybe some other managers might have with very, very analytics-heavy front offices. Uh, I am under the impression that, you know, he's he's the guy that really is writing up the lineup. Of course, he's getting all the input from the front office and, you know, the the, the many, many analysts that they have. But uh, he he's really calling the shots, is, is my understanding. And I'd be hard-pressed to say that he's made very many mistakes this year. I, it feels like he's probably going to get manager of the year at this point. And obviously, he has to, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, when he was first hired the Phillies, it wasn't necessarily viewed well. It didn't go well. And obviously, um, you know, managers and teams are kind of a marriage and there's two sides to it. But like, what do you think is, is it just like he needed a different environment or has he changed how he's doing things or it's just, this is just a better match for him? So many managers are better in their second or third jobs. I think that's first mm-hmm. and foremost um, what's going on. But he has changed, I think, the way he communicates with players, particularly relievers. Uh, he's It's much more collaborative. I think that uh, in Philadelphia, it wasn't quite my way or the highway. But you know, there's some insecurities, I think, that go along with being especially a young first-time manager and in a very tough town like Philly, you know, the fans are mm-hmm. tough on managers. The media is tough on managers. And I think that he did have to present maybe a little bit more of a harder shell in San Francisco. It, hey, be a touchy feely, you know, we're all in this together kind of manager. That's great. And that's, that's kind of the, the tactic he's using, you know, it really is collaborative, but we've actually seen, uh, how this, what this means. You know, he will go out and talk to Johnny Cueto in the middle of an inning in a situation where maybe in Philly he would have just taken him out. He talks to him, leaves him in. That goes a long way with starters, particularly a veteran like Cueto. Uh, Tyler Rogers has a terrible outing at Los Angeles, blows a late game, Giants lose big game. He's back out there the very next night and gets the save. And uh, that goes a long way with him. And Kapler in between has said, you know, next time I'm in that same situation, you are going right back in. I'm not sure he was doing those things in Philadelphia. Um, You know, when this, when you, again, like when you look at this team breaking camp, they didn't look like a bad team. They didn't look like they're this good of a team, but they're also a team that was loaded, loaded with guys with expiring contracts. And it felt like, you know, they'd make their little run. And if things fell off and in July, they'd be huge sellers of the deadline and have all sorts of, of players to try to start a rebuild. No matter what happens, the, the, the 2022 San Francisco giants are going to have a dramatic, dramatically different roster. Um, are they in a position where you think they're going to try to keep some of these players? Well, that is the the one thing I think that has really drastically changed this year. Uh, you're right. I, at the beginning of the season, I think everyone, national and local, was saying, like, look at all this money that's going to come off their payroll at the end of the year. You know, Crawford and Belt for sure, probably Posey unless they rework his, that option. And 
uh, Cueto for sure. Uh, Cueto's probably the one guy you go like, yeah, he's probably off the payroll. But they've they've got some tough decisions elsewhere, and now you got to throw Chris Bryant into that mix too. Uh, Crawford, I think they much like Posey, they need to sit down and have a conversation with. You know, let's do your kind of last your last contract here, and um, you know maybe a little less for a few more years, and you stay with the organization. Neither one of them wants to go anywhere else. They've both said they'd like to retire as Giants. I think that seems doable. Belt is going to be an interesting uh, conversation because they have, you know, Belt, Belt misses six, seven weeks with a knee problem. And Lamont Wade and Darren Ruff did a very nice job filling mm-hmm. in. You look at the three of their numbers combined over the course of the year, they've got the best production out of first baseman in the major leagues. So uh, they could probably, but, you know, Brandon Belt brings a lot. His, his value is uh, pretty all around for that team. So they certainly are going to have the conversation, if nothing else. Uh, and Chris Bryant, you know, this is a guy that fits with the Giants too perfectly. The Giants were his favorite team growing up. He worshiped Barry Bonds. He loves it here. But this is a team that goes into the postseason and does well. Uh, but I would have to think both he and the Giants would have a lot of interest in maybe making that a longer term deal. So uh, Ed Gosman, Di Sclafani, I mean, they've got I mean, their they whole rotation other than Logan Webb. Back. Yeah, they don't have any pitchers coming back next year except for Logan Webb. So Gosman also seems like he's found something in San Francisco where he just looks like a different pitcher since joining them. Yeah, I, you know what? This is where I think that we go back to the coaching staff and what a good job they've been doing. And I, you know, I was among those. And it, granted, I was across the bay when they when they made all these hires. Although I do, I wrote a lot about Kapler for some reason when he first got hired. Uh, they they have so many coaches, you know, far more than any other team in the league, and that so many of them are young or don't have a ma- major league background. Um, and I, I think a lot of the sort of old school people were looking askance at that. I remember seeing the, how many there were and thinking like, what are they doing? This is crazy. Uh, it's working, 100% working. And I think that's one reason that uh, free agent pitchers are finding the Giants an attractive group is because they the word is out that these this is a staff that um, knows how to work with the pitchers to get the best out of them. Uh, if it's somebody looking to regain something that they'd had or add something new or hone something, uh, they've, they've you know, Brian Bannister, Andrew Bailey, everyone with that, you know, that works with the pitchers has uh, really, you know, they're using all of the advanced metrics and all of the video, anything possible to really maximize guys' stuff. And, and it's working. Uh, so I think that's going to, we're going to continue to see that. I think it's going to be a destination for free agent pitchers however uh the coaching staff has been just as valuable for the hitters right i uh i would think that veteran guys like brandon crawford brandon belt especially buster posey might also be a little skeptical of all mm-hmm. these young young coaches so many of them are going oh, this is not the but bo- bo- the bruce bochi way of doing things brandon crawford got on board with his, the three hitting coaches right away and he has credited them every time somebody talks about this year and what he's doing this year he's, he's like it's this this goes back to the work that i've been doing with these hitting coaches and i think the fact that he and posey pretty quickly were saying things like yeah i, I like this coaching staff and what right. we're hearing from them and the information they're giving that helped everyone accept them and um right away last year was an uh, kind of underrated big step for launching off what they're doing a little bit earlier than anticipated because of that. 
Uh, right now, per the Fangraphs playoff odds, the Giants have a 99.5% chance of reaching the postseason. Um, but that chance is kind of split 50-50 between winning the division and getting to the wildcard game, which is basically a, a coin flip no matter how you look at it. Beyond the the easy answer of they have to stay healthy, uh, what do they need to do to what are what are the kind of the key factors? What is going to define the final six or so weeks of the season in terms of them holding on to this lead or ending up in a wild card spot? Well, you know you're right with health, and that kind of goes into their their very main topic, which is their starting pitching. Um, we've seen a, some drop off. Um, and in some cases, some significant drop-offs from some of their major pieces. Gosman's had some. DeSclafani's had quite a bit. Um, DeSclafani pitched 33 innings last year. He's close to 130 this year. They gave him. He's currently on the IL, about to come off with uh, arm fatigue. Great idea to get him some rest. Cueto is the next guy. They're getting some rest. He's he just went on the IL with a uh, some flexor tendon soreness. Uh, <laughs> They don't have very much starting pitching depth at the deadline. They opted not to get another starter. The price tags were too high. Uh, they couldn't. They, they they talked about everybody. Uh, they just couldn't find a match that they liked. So you know they they had a reliever in Tony Watson who they know and love. This goes back to the chemistry thing that was very much a, a, an important consideration. Uh, and Chris Bryant, who Scott Harris obviously has a very long connection with from his Chicago days. So, uh, but no starting pitching, and they did need to add something now. Um, you know they're they're citing all these minor league free agent pitchers that have big league experience as a result. Chatwood yeah. and Shoemaker and Scott Casimir's coming back from the Olympics. This is not going to be an ideal situation if the Giants have one or more of these guys in the rotation down the stretch. It's just not. So yes, health, but more than that, uh, they need these guys pitching at their best rather than absolutely gassed, which we've seen signs of. Yeah, and that doesn't even take into account we're thinking Alex Wood is one of the rocks of the rotation. That's yeah, yeah. He's... So Alex Wood um, is so fascinating. <laughs> he is so great following Giants losses and has just not been nearly as effective following wins. And they're on this nice little winning streak. And he's been kind of the one, you know, flying the ointment during these, uh, during the winning streak. But man, the second they lose a game, he is right there. So I don't know if they like lock him in a room and try to convince him that they lost the night before after a win or <laughs> what they do. But uh, he's like a different guy. And I'm sure, I'm sure that's just, you know, you guys are the number guys, right? I'm sure it's just coincidental. It's in a very, very small sample size. But uh, it really is an extreme difference, pitching after losses and pitching after wins. And you need the stopper. It's incredibly valuable. But uh, he's just not the same after a win. And uh, he's he's ending losing streaks and he's ending winning streaks. <laughs> uh, you talked about the chemistry of this team. Um, like who's the in the clubhouse and, and, and I'll feel like who's kind of the, the, the straw that stirs the drink. Is it like the vets with the rings like Posey and Crawford or is it someone else? Well, I got to think Bozy and especially, you know, because he's so involved with both the, the lineup and the pitching staff, he's number one. Uh, and he's just such a solid, seen-it-all, done-it-all guy, you know, uh, does not suffer fools. He is uh, really looked up to. And Crawford and Belt are kind of a little bit lighter personalities, um, but both... It's, it's funny, it's not a, you know, I've covered so many A's teams that were really good, that were known for being super loose, wild, crazy. We got all these big personalities. This team is not like that. It is not a big personality team. It's not a, you know, we're, we're, we're doing crazy stuff in the clubhouse. They're just a really nice, fun, good bunch of guys who get along and it's pretty low key. 
but it's all working for them. Uh, but I think even some of the new guys are having an impact. Lamont Wade, such a smart offseason pickup, uh, has been just tremendous. Uh, isn't, you know, he's not going to be a big voice in the clubhouse, but I think everybody sort of admires the way he goes about his business. Mm-hmm. Kirk Casale, same thing. Kirk Casale, I could talk about Kirk Casale for the next 10 minutes. I, how many backup catchers in baseball uh, are doing what he's doing? The team's record with Kirk Casale catching is 32 and 8. That's insane. He's, since he came off the IL in mid June, you know, he did nothing offensively for the first. 10 weeks of the season comes off the IL. He's hitting 333 since then. Um, and seems like he's always coming up with a big hit in a big situation. Uh, he's got the best catcher's ERA. You know, if you have, if you adjust for not being qualified, he's got the best catcher's ERA in the game. So uh, it's that sort of thing. These uh, kind of role guys are taking to their roles, uh, not just well, but um, extremely, you know, the, the production and the performance is off the charts for these guys that you would think would be kind of bit players. And they've elevated that. And that goes a long way in the clubhouse, too. You look at somebody like that and go like, hey, in limited time, this guy is making a massive impact. You know, I might be a bit player, too. I, you know, I could do that. Or if guys are coming up, they can look at that and say, like, man, I you know, everyone, everyone around here is pulling their weight and doing it with a really good attitude that this is what I need to do. So, yeah, that's one reason I think maybe that we saw Aaron Sanchez get DFA'd, even though the Giants mm-hmm. are extremely light in uh, starting pitching. I can't emphasize that enough. He had a very good April for them. But he's, you know, he signed with the Giants. I'm not faulting him at all. He signed with the Giants to be a starter. He wanted right. very much to be in the rotation. Uh, and he was on the IL for more than two months, comes off, and there's not a spot for him in the rotation. He really did not want to be pitching in relief. I don't think he was necessarily a problem as a result, but I don't think he was hugely happy about it. And I think they felt like, hey, you know, if he clears waivers and he's an option for us, fantastic. The guy can pitch. We don't have a lot of starting pitching. If somebody picks him up, you know, that's probably what he wants to do. That might be better for him. So, uh, you know, kind of Nobody's at fault. I think that was probably the best thing. He just was not quite a fit the way some right. of these other guys who've contributed have been. Um, you know, as, as I said when we introduced you, you covered for the Chronicle the Oakland A's for for over two decades, um, and you transitioned this year to across the the bay, and now you're covering the Giants. What has been the biggest difference between covering the A's and the Giants? Oh my gosh! I mean, the obvious one, and it's so true, is money. <laughs> So uh, let me ask you, because so this kind of like was going to be my follow up. But, you know, I live in Chicago and I've lived in Chicago for ever. And um, but my wife's from the Bay Area. We go to the Bay Area once or twice a year when there's not a global pandemic. And um, it's always you know felt to me as a semi outsider or as a mostly outsider that like the analogy is the Giants are like the Cubs and the A's are like the White Sox. Like the, the Giants are, are the rich kids team and the White Sox are the, are the working class team. Is, is, is that accurate? Yeah, uh, maybe the White Sox with a worse with a worse stadium and, and yeah. um, sort of more consistently good uh, front office. Uh, I yeah, I a little bit. Uh, I would say that's that's accurate. But obviously, there's it, it's so much more layered. But yeah, the money is a, it's a big thing, you know. Um, it, there's one team with this beautiful 
ballpark right next to the water and it's a tourist destination and they pack it and it's you know it's a team everybody talks about mm -hmm. uh, and this other team that is scrappy and does everything right and always has fascinating interesting teams I've been so lucky you know I went from a team that I always think is the most interesting pretty much in pro sports in the A's I mean you know we've got money ball attests to that and that's that's how they were every year basically even years they were out of it they were always fascinating to now the Giants who are uh, equally as <laughs> fascinating but um, you know they just don't get the attention and they don't have the money so they don't have the resources to to go out and necessarily make big moves at the deadline um, except for 2014 which backfired a little bit and they really can't go out and make big moves in the offseason right. and uh, you just I really see that and it's just some of the some of the things are just small like um, the Giants are much more corporate and much smarter about things like um, marketing. Uh, and I'll give you a, an instant, uh, because I was shocked by this. Uh, the A's are always a little more, uh, I don't know, uh, sort of, they have a family vibe, which is one thing that Billy Bean always talked about when he decided not to go to base, to Boston. You know, mm -hmm. like the dedication, everybody goes there and stays there forever because they have this real family vibe. They do. The starting pitcher there always forever has gotten to choose the color of the jersey. That's been that's been a thing. Hey, starting pitcher gets to do it. That's that's one of the things we do here because we're kind of all all in it together. The Giants, it's the marketing department essentially mm. chooses the jersey color. They've and they've got different colors for different nights. Uh, the players aren't the players aren't weighing in on stuff like that. So, um, but I was stunned. I was like, wait, the players don't choose that? Why not? Why why are they wearing these hideous Gatorade? I was going to say that reflects on well on the players this year. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's it's much it's much more about um, you know marketing and corporate stuff, and there's nothing wrong with that. Hey, it's absolutely working, and it's not done nefariously or anything like that. But money, marketing, and the corporate stuff is much, and it, it extends even to the managers. Um, Gabe Kapler is a, a different kind of manager. Um, he he speaks some sort of a, a lot of uh, TED Talk kind of phrases, <laughs> and uh, he can come across as a little bit robotic and programmed. He's not. He's much better, you know, off the record and not on Zooms. On Zooms especially, it makes everybody seem a little bit robotic. Um, but he does have a tendency to speak in a lot of corporate catchphrases, and I think everybody knows Bob Melvin is as good as it comes with dealing with the media and, yeah. um, you know, really connecting um with, with people and just sort of normal, you know, very old school baseball, all of that. They're a huge contrast, but they really exemplify their organizations utterly just in the way they, they deal with the media and, and, and maybe even, well, maybe not the players. I get, Kapler is, is um, astonishingly um, uh, good, I think, with, with dealing with his players on a personal level. He, you know, I mentioned a little bit, but, you know, Jay Jackson had the incident a few weeks ago. Where yeah, yeah. He, yeah, it was direct. A lot of um, racial epithets and threats were directed at him on social media. And Kapler really kind of almost broke down talking about it. Uh, he was as affected by it, maybe even more, I think, than Jay Jackson was. So, um, you know, he is, he is really very well connected to the players. Have, have, has the mechanics of your job changed at all going from Oakland to San Francisco? Well, really only in that, you know, do, going to a new beat in the, the Zoom era and it's still right. Zoom post games and there's no clubhouses pregames. That, that's made it much more difficult. I feel like I really still don't know the players the way I would, uh, especially without a real spring training. You know, that was all Zoom. 
uh, I have yet to talk to Buster Posey, say, one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, I know him and Crawford a little bit from talking to them in groups covering playoff series in past years and stuff like that. But I certainly feel like I don't really know B Buster very well. The other day was the first time I'd ever talked to Brandon Belt one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, by this point of spring training, I would have sat down with everybody for, for quite a while and gotten to know them. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> I am not going to complain. This is a absolutely insanely fun team to cover uh and that the games have all been fascinating they really they've got they're one of those teams that it doesn't really matter how far they're down or how late in the game it is there's always a sense that they could come back down two strikes two outs in the ninth and they've done it you know uh several times in yeah, that, that situation. milwaukee game last week was insane yeah so they really have that kind of sense and those those tend to be pretty fun special teams um so, so from here, the Giants obviously kind of have a bigger footprint. We, you know, about three months ago, we had Alex Coffey on to talk about the A Stadium situation. Um, obviously, you covered that team for a long time. Uh, she was very pessimistic about the A staying in Oakland. Uh, and so, uh, you, what do you think? The like in three years, are the A's still in Oakland? I don't think Major League Baseball wants the A's to move out of Oakland. Um, if you look at it just from surely from a business standpoint, which you know how Major League Baseball is looking at it, they want to expand why they would like expansion fees if the a's move to vegas or somewhere else that costs them an expansion fee mm -hmm. so i think a lot of what we've been hearing is posturing um certainly oakland city council um essentially agreed with everything the a's wanted with some very minor uh things that the a's have kind of pushed back on a little bit you know do you really think the A's are not going to take $500 million offer essentially from the city council to help with infrastructure based on the number of tax districts that are created to provide that money? Right. That's essentially right now what it's boiled down to. Um, we still don't have the environmental impact report. There's some things like that that's still that are still some hoops. But uh, yeah, I just look at it surely from the cynical money standpoint and i don't see baseball wanting to leave the fifth or sixth biggest largest uh um market in the country for something that's in the 40s that's what's, uh, and also then lose out on an expansion fee that's what's so shocking about it is that there's no question that the bay is big enough for two teams and the giant i don't think anybody in baseball wants the giants having this whole market to themselves right they automatically yeah. become uh the richest of the rich so because, you know, the Dodgers sort of share uh, at least that general area, the Yankees and Mets share an at least area. in team name Cubs and the White Sox share an area. You know, the Giants automatically have the biggest, most populous, richest area all to themselves uh, that is not shared. And I don't think um, many of the other owners are are, are going to really love that. And we know that Rob Rob Bamford is really always act, acting for the owners. So I just uh, I think this will happen. I don't. I can't say it's going to be soon, but right, I think right. eventually it will. And that's that's purely for cynical reasons, not because, of, oh, I want to keep the A's in Oakland. Of course I do. I think it's great having both teams in the Bay Area. Uh, I think every big major metro should have two baseball teams. It's fantastic. But, um, yeah, base, base, baseball wants those expansion fees, and I don't think they want the Giants uh, basically overwhelming everyone else with their riches. <laughs> well, Susan, but if want... they do, that's fine with me because I'm covering them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Susan, I want to thank you for coming on and talking to us about the Giants. If you want to read Susan's stuff, she's at the San Francisco Chronicle. If you want to follow Susan on Twitter, she is at Susan Slusser, S-U-S-A-N-S-L-U-S-S-E-R. No spaces or underscores or anything. Is there anything else you want to plug? 
Oh, no. I mean, you know, sfchronicle.com, uh, Giants A's coverage, nonstop, loads of, loads of stuff. We have one of the best national writers in baseball and John Shea and our columnists, St. Killian and Scott Osser, also all, all over it. So um, always good content there. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, Susan. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Half moon eyes cover my head in your haunted halls up against every wall. Please don't think about me. back to the podcast our thanks to susan slosser for joining us talk about the giants she was great um our musical guest this week laura stevenson laura has a connection to the podcast um in the sense that uh this is off of her uh, latest album which is on don giovanni records and this was don giovanni records provide many many musicians and, and many musical acts of the podcast but also did so before i worked for fangraphs and before i worked for the astros i also had a podcast uh, called Up and In, and Laura Stevenson and the Cans at that time, her band, uh, that was the first uh, album that Don Giovanni ever provided to us. So there's a, a fun connection there. Um, this is off of her newly self-titled studio album, again, on Don Giovanni Records. It came out last week. Um, th- Laura was kind of born to do music. It's pretty funny. Like her her um, 
Her grandfather was a successful pianist and composer. Um, he wrote The Little Drummer Boy and Do You Hear What I Hear? Wow. Um, and, and her grandma was a, a singer for for Benny Goodman. And um, this is a, it's a really good, good album. It's getting a lot of incredible critical acclaim. Um, and it it's, uh, follows kind of some life-altering events. She gave birth to her first child during the pandemic um, and also went through a, a turbulent situation in which someone she loves was harmed and nearly killed. Um, this album was produced by John Agnello, who's worked with Kurt Vile, Dinosaur Jr., among others. Um, it's an emotionally heavy record. It's very, very good. She is uh, very hot. This album's getting a, a ton of acclaim, and I hope you enjoy it. You can learn more at laurastevenson.net um, or go to Don Giovanni Records' website. And, and thanks, as always, to Joe Steinhardt over at Don Giovanni for providing incredible music to the podcast. He is a, a, uh, a big part of what we do at this point. I always appreciate him uh, sending along music and have us play. Are you ready to do emails? Let's do it. Send us emails. We get good ones, but you can send us more at chinmusic at fangraphs.com. We read them all. We answer some of them. Our first email comes from Brendan. And yes, Ben, it's the Brendan you think it is, who works with us at Fangraphs, but nonetheless sent an email to the <laughs> podcast, which kind of had me laughing. But it's a good question. It's a fun one. Uh, Brendan says, I have a scouting question. When teams are drafting, particularly guys picked in the first couple of rounds, do teams have a tendency to take players who played well when the GM or the scouting director happened to be in the ballpark? I imagine that decision makers would feel more confident about taking someone they saw perform well. That's just human nature. But it's also not a great way to make decisions. I imagine everyone is intuitively aware of this potential bias, but it would also take a lot of discipline on the part of the GM or scouting director not to overvalue the times they saw pitcher A at the top of his game versus pitcher B, who may be just as good but had a mediocre outing when the GM was in the house. Is there any insight here? Yeah, I you know this this term comes up a lot in baseball. I think it's I think it's also just a scientific term, bias on view. Yeah. Um, and, Availability uh, heuristic, maybe. Yeah, and it yeah. It happens. It comes up, and it it happens, and definitely it helps. Uh, you know, for for good or for bad. If, uh, if if you play good when someone's in the house, it's uh it's happened. And, you know, I think a good example, and I'm not saying this is why it happened, but I, I know it. I know it happened. I, I or rather, I know the facts behind it in the sense that, um, you know, about a month before the draft, I I someone. You know, Eric and I get these kind of funny texts and emails like, hey, I'm, I'm watching this guy and, and this GM is here. This guy and director is here. Um, and, and Michael Elias was in the house and Colton Kowser went off. Like he had, he had one of those weekends. You know, he went like eight for 11 with three bombs or something. Um, and I'm sure it played a role. I'm sure it helped. Um, and, and, you know, we talked about it on the draft podcast, but like, you know, Colton Kowser also checked uh, all sorts of buttons uh, or all sorts of boxes rather on, on statistical models. But um, I think him going eight for 11 with three bombs and not going one for 12 with eight strikeouts helped yeah. uh, in, in terms of just comfort. Um, but you do have to be careful. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously I, you know, I was not the decision maker in the draft at any point in my career. Thank God. Um, but you know, the, the, the best start, the best pitcher I saw, the best single performance I saw that year in the, of the draft um, was Carson Fulmer at Vanderbilt. You know, the year he was coming out and he pitched against Missouri and I want to say he struck out like 13 or so in seven innings, all in ridiculous breaking balls. Um, I shoved him. I put a huge number on him. I thought he was amazing. Um, and we all know how that turned out. And so like, like, yeah, one star can be a real scary thing. I, I, I think it's much more comfortable if you can like with a position player, if you can sit, sit in for, if you have the time 
um, to like sit there for a weekend, you know, and get three games and get double digit plate appearances and get, you know, watch him, you know, take infield or outfield or catching field or whatever position he plays to, you know, before the game. And it's a lot easier than just going to see like one guy, one start. Uh, um, but, but to answer your question, yeah, it, it's not the greatest way to make decisions, but it definitely plays a role. Those guys see those players for a reason, you know? Yeah. I think it's, I think it is not completely invalid. I mean, no, like if someone has a, like a three for four game, where they like hit a home run just over the fence and hit two seeing eye singles, and you think and you let that make you think they're the best player that there is. Okay, that's that's maybe not great. But if they hit five balls and they're all crushed, like it it is a useful extra data point to have. Yeah, but, and I, you know it, it's it's you know I saw obviously I saw Alex Bregman the weekend uh, for a weekend the year the Astros drafted Alex Bregman. Uh, second overall and it was against georgia it was in athens and i think he went like two for 13 um and he hit like eight balls on the nose you know and it was like yeah i'm in i'm fine this is great yeah um letting yourself get too into you know batting average on something is is one thing but seeing a guy who's just crushing the ball like it is useful data i feel like i mean this is me from the outside but i feel like people are a lot too willing to discount personal experience recently in baseball analytics and say, ah, oh, sample size. You can't, can't think about that at all. But I don't know. It, I'd rather, if I went to go see a guy, I'd rather have him do well than bad. Yeah, no question. Um, our next email comes from John. And this is a fun question because it is August 13th. It is National Left-Handers Day. I am left-handed. Uh, I am too, actually. <laughs> so John asks, with the, shift mo- with the shift moving so many infielders into a shallow right field position, are we closer to a team playing a left-handed throwing second or third baseman? If his team wanted his bat in the lineup, it seems like the traditional downside of the lefty infielder is getting smaller. From shallow right field or behind second base, there are plays made when the fielder is moving to his left and the left-handed throw could be made and it wouldn't seem to be awkward. It's a fun question, John. I once talked to uh, a, a infield coach about this as a left-hander, and he was convinced actually that third base, even in a traditional setting could be set up as a left-handed thrower um because you're going to your left more than your right and your moment momentum's already that way and and, and the throw wouldn't be too hindered the hardest Um, part is definitely when you have to go to your right yeah because you're (laughs) unmakeable you're gonna have to spin um but he thought like a rangy guy and you just play him closer to the line and you might be able to get away with it again if you need the bat in the lineup um we also don't have left-handed catchers, which I don't, you know, it's just, is a weird thing. Um, but I, I don't, do you think we're going to see a left-handed? Yeah, I was going to say, these are great points, you know, wonderful question. The answer is no. <laughs> I like, think no. you're probably right, yeah. Um, it's funny because I, they're, I, they're, I, I was watching a Yankees game, I can't remember which one, but but they were talking about the 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 top the pine tar game because one of the umps they're talking about one of the umpires involved and and the pine tar game when they came back um months later like there were roster screw-ups and guys who were with the team weren't with the team anymore kind of thing mm-hmm. and and at the resumption of that game don mattingly played second base huh um, I which i did that. not know i did not know that either until they said that so so it's happened already john but it's not going to happen again that's a lovely that's a lovely fact i had no clue yeah i didn't i didn't know that either 
Um, our next email comes from, comes from another John, different Johns. If you're a John, email the podcast, chinmusic at fangraphs.com. And John says, hey, KG, what was the most surprising thing you learned about the minor leagues after you joined the front office? Obviously, you had a wealth of knowledge before joining them, but what were you surprised to discover? Um, I think one of the things I need to talk about is I thought I had a wealth of knowledge, and I I found out very quickly that I did not. Um, But I think the most surprising thing was um, the amount of work that goes into these players and, and how big and how complicated and how challenging player development is. Um, I think if you asked most GMs, they would tell you that, that their player development group is not only your largest group in terms of people and resources, but um, they're also spread out all over the country, which adds to kind of creates a management challenge and getting everyone on the same page in terms of what they're teaching and how they're teaching it and what they're focusing on is a real challenge. But just the number of human beings, just like you know, between the manager and the coaches and the conditioning guy and the trainer um, and analytic people and everyone, you know, all on board and putting all their effort into making these players better. It was kind of just the number of people and resources that went into it. Um, as opposed to just kind of setting the lineup and letting them play a game today, like all the work that kind of went into that game and went into the players even before the game in terms of the work and all that stuff. That was easily the biggest surprise to me. It was just the amount of work that went into it as opposed to just kind of, you know, having them play the game, watch what happens and talking to them. Yeah, it is. It is remarkable to me how much data it seems like teams are collecting from their minor leagues and how much input they're giving that, that I just like, it's easy for us to just look and say like, well, you just look to see who has the good, you know, the good predictive stats. Right. But it's just, just so much more to it than that. Right. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a really great prospect in the Philly system. He's probably there. He's their best prospect. Uh, McAble, uh, who's a pitcher. Um, and, he had a, you know, a couple outings that were just not, you know, not as good, right? Yeah. Um, he was still really good, and they're like, "Oh, what's what's wrong with?" They literally took, they literally took his curveball away. They're like, "Was that it's on purpose?" Yeah, they're like, or rather, hey, like, are they planning on restoring it at some point? Oh, absolutely! It's his best. It's, it's it's an awesome pitch, but they're like, you can just show up there and like spin this stuff and dominate, and we need you to work on your fastball command. So you're just gonna throw more fastballs. You know, and so, and you see it all the time. Like you're not throwing your slider today. It's just, it's too, it's, you know, it's, we kind of, there are times where you don't want to necessarily move a player up, but you kind of want to go into the settings and change the, the game difficulty. Right. Um, and, and so stuff like that happens all the time and, and you don't necessarily know it unless you, you know, watch the game or, or you know, or, or, or talk to someone who was at the game or, or someone involved with the player's development. And all of a sudden things are different and, you know, a guy, pretty good prospects only go three for 20 and like, well, they, they kind of mess with his mechanics. They think it'll be better in the end, but it's going to take some time to adjust and things like that. It's thing, weird things can happen. This is a, a bit of a pivot, but how often is the guy you picked in the last, in last year's draft, your top prospect? Not often. That I would seems, say that's yeah. like not a great sign for the Phillies. <laughs> I mean, it's also a good sign that he's doing so well, but yeah, no, he's really good. Like he's, I think he's one of the better pitching prospects in baseball, actually. Um, like he's, 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 it's an up trajectory since his draft even. Um, yeah, he's really good, but I, like, you know, I don't know. It's funny. I think about like Eric and I obviously, you know, messed around and, and, and reorganized some team lists after the draft. Um, I don't know, like, so I would say five to 10, like your, your first pick, like, and that's a lot of times it's cause like, you know, especially if like you're a, you know, you're in a shitty, you're, you're, you have a shitty organization, you have a high pick, it's going to happen every time. You right. Know? Um, it's and obviously it's going to happen a lot more for teams with single digit picks than anything else. But yeah, it's one thing if you know you pick the first overall pick and he's just the best player by far. Mm-hmm. 
Although, I don't know, like, is Henry Davis the best prospect in the pirate system? I think so. But, good, but I think so, yeah. But the Phillies didn't even pick that early that year. No. He was the 15th pick. Yeah, he was a weird one. Like, yeah, there was, like, money stuff. He's He's been better than expected. If you redrafted, he would go higher. Got it. Yeah, he's been really good. Um, our party email comes from Ian. Ian says, hola, Fernando. Do you know about the Fernando thing? I do not. So, um, during the presidential race uh, mm-hmm. that was took place, uh, I gave money to the Bernie Sanders campaign. And by doing that, I ended up on any number of mailing lists, um, most of which I unsubscribed from because they're annoying, but I kept one because they're really funny, and they think I'm a man named Fernando who lives in Chula Vista, California, um, and they send the most deranged emails to me. Um, I can't believe these these work at all. I'm actually opening my email so I can just, the headlines themselves are phenomenal. It's from some pack. Um, I'm just searching my Gmail for Fernando. And I'll have enough. Um, and the headlines are things like, Governor Gavin Newsom is in trouble. Uh, Republican Jim Jordan wins. Chuck Schumer's urgent plan. Fernando, we want to hear about you about Social Security. And it's, it's uh, we need more signatures about the Proud Boys. It's, it's, I, am, it's uh, I am on one of these as Dr. Sham Amin. Okay, so you're. Uh, I'm Fernando. So this is the chin, welcome to Chin Music with Fernando and Doctor Amin. Um, but Ian says, "Hola, Fernando. Now that we have a good bit of 2021 behind us, I would be interested to know your general thoughts on how minor leaguers were impacted by the 2020 non-season and whether or not these thoughts are in line with what you assume would be the case last year. Does anything surprise you? Uh, I kind of want to expand this for you, Ben, as well, um, and just talk about the 2020 season." uh overall and and how 2021 is or how, how 2021 has been impacted by the weirdness of 2020 right um and has it been what you expected and does anything surprise you i the one thing i did expect and i i maybe i'm dumb daft and i, I just don't understand why and I, I you know it's just kind of always told you know given to me in kind of more vague well players are out of their routine right and yeah. like i talked to plenty of people in spring training who are just terrified about health and injuries this year. And I didn't necessarily understand that. Well, I was like, well, they got out of their routine. They didn't necessarily take care of themselves. And I was like, ah, it doesn't, I don't understand this. And, but it, they were right. Right. They were absolutely right. The injuries have been, um, yeah, that off one the charts this year. And, and so that's been something that the, the, the industry expected and got right about. That one clicked for me immediately because I have not been in my routine because of COVID because things are just all different. Right. And I could imagine if it was my Are job you, to keep my body had, at a highly had hamstring performance level. <laughs> no, but I haven't. I haven't been diving for a lot of baseballs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if if I had been, I I could imagine that that could be the case. Probably a lot of them haven't gone to the gyms they go to in the off season. Yeah, for sure. There is someone on the patio, maybe twenty feet from me here, who does some Olympic style lifts out in their semi shared patio area and slams their weights down and. Aside from being really annoying for me, and I hope you're listening to this podcast and hear this and stop doing it. I've left you some anonymous notes, a uh, person who lives near me. I can imagine that that person probably used to do that at a gym. Wait a second. You left them anonymous notes? Uh, yeah. Go talk to them. Uh, so I have talked to them after these anonymous notes. They were not particularly nice about it. Oh, no. But, okay. you know. So, okay, so, so how, how many times a day does this happen? Less than one. So once a day, this person goes out and lifts weights and drops the bar. Uh, 
I think they're those big foam plates, you know, for doing like power cleans and stuff. So they slam the bar down maybe 15 times. And your whole apartment shakes. It makes a big sound. You can, like my desk does shake. <laughs> um, my, I, as much as anything, my dog hates it. Right. As you might imagine. And, yep. uh, but okay, that's, that's a very specific micro version. But if you're an athlete, like, what if you're doing power cleans for your health and your fitness and your game readiness? And now you're trying to do it in your patio and having to deal with your neighbor who's like, dude, stop. I think the other thing that I, I and I was right about this and the fact that we can't know anything about it um, is just player performance. I just think you need to look at that 2020 season and just go, well, that's what happened. Good or bad. Like, that's yeah. what happened. It is, it's partially a small sample size. It's partially... Um, just the psychological reality of what, of what players were going through and 8 million other factors that we can never understand or explain necessarily. Um, you know, before we started recording, I was, I did a radio hit in Toronto and they asked me about Marcus Simeon and I, I like all we learned was like that Marcus Simeon's really good. Like that's what we've learned this year. Right. Yeah. And he was great in 2019. He was far from great last year. And whatever the reason for that was, it was not an accurate depiction of how good Marcus Simeon is or how bad, right? Yeah. He's actually really, really good, which is what we've learned this year. And, and you know, this, this, the season he's having right now is very much in line with 2019. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it, it's almost a carbon copy, really. And that, I feel like we can be confident that's what Marcus Simeon is in his 2020 thing. And this is, you know, it's, it's, it's something that would bother me a lot more if I was, you know, Dan Zimborski and doing Zips projections, which is now you have like Marcus Simeon being the one we know and love in 2019, the one we know and love in 2021. And then he has this kind of weird shitty 2020. Like, how do you adjust for that? I, it's, I'm glad I'm not thinking about it. Yeah. I do wonder to what extent you're just going to have a hard coded thing in the model where you say, hey, like we're going to add a ton more noise to the 2020 data just forever. Yeah, And that's ugly and, you know, not not the prettiest way to build your models but but might ultimately be more accurate yeah i think Um, that might be the case and i don't know what in the world you're supposed to do about that so yeah i think the main thing we've learned at this point is that 2020 was a mess and i don't think we'll ever really understand how we can adjust for what we saw in 2020 yeah i completely agree then let's not do it again what (laughs) what did we you ever see burn after reading yeah so i I, I, such the, the, the the they have such small roles but the cia guys at the very end uh, it's like, what did we learn? Yeah, I don't know, sir. I guess we learned not to do it again. <laughs> Whatever the fuck it is we did. Um, that's 2020 in a nutshell. No question. Um, send your emails again. Jimmysicfangraphs.com. It's time to catch up with you, Ben. We both went on vacations last week. Yeah. The Midwest was lovely, Kevin. How was the Bay? The Bay Area was absolutely lovely. Um, traveling was weird. Um, and it was just, I got what I, I really just kind of wanted to do nothing. Like we, we, we stay at, um, my wife's sister house who has a, a lovely and very large house in, in Clayton, California, which is way East Bay. And, um, like she was like, what do you, what does Kevin want to do? What do you guys do? Like, you don't understand. Like I, I literally don't want to do things. That's, that's what I want is not to do things. But at the same time, like we booked this trip probably six, seven weeks ago when things were looking up. Right. Yeah. And then like maybe three weeks ago, I remember like, um, saying to my wife, you know what? We should probably find our vaccination cards and put them in our bags. Yeah. And then like maybe 10 days before we left, we're like, 
Ah, the whole Bay Area is going to required mass inside. We should probably put some mass in our back. And all of a sudden, um, like the concept of like doing the kind of thing that we might do on a, in a in a normal world of like you know going to Chinatown and running around shitty stores and, and getting some great food kind of thing. Right. Not as appealing. Yeah. You know, and so we did just kind of hang um, in in Clayton. I, I drove out to Oakland one day and, and visited um, a dear friend, a friend of the podcast, Ian, um, and hung out with Ian for a while. But, you know, we didn't do a lot of, like, super public stuff. We had, I, we had a, a lovely lunch in Antioch, of all places, one day. Um, but it, it didn't go out much. But it was great. I just, like, honestly, I, it, doing nothing was, was absolutely wonderful. And it really is goddamn pretty there. I always like doing nothing. Yeah. And, you know, we normally go there once or twice a year anyway. It's, 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 you know, for someone who lives in, in the Midwest where um, literally the highest point in the state, I believe, is an Indian burial mound. Um, and, you know, it's just flat in cornfields. Just, it's kind of, it, it's just lovely there. But you went to St. Louis. I did. Um, so, my dad grew up in St. Louis. My uncle still lives there. And so I hadn't seen my dad since the start of COVID. So just went back mm-hmm. to have a kind of semi-family reunion. And we... Does he, and does he live in St. Louis or no? He doesn't. He lives in South Carolina. But Okay. So, so he, you both went to St. Louis. Yeah. Halfway. Hadn't seen my uncle since the start of COVID either. And my mm-hmm. dad hadn't seen him. You know, they, they usually see each other much more often than that. They're brothers. I guess that's somewhat obvious. And uh, you went to a ball game? Went to a ball game. This is another trip that we planned in June and then... You know, in late July, I was like, oh, base, baseball game in Missouri. Uh, I don't, I don't know about this. And yeah, Missouri's having some COVID issues. Missouri is having some COVID issues. That is accurate. And while St. Louis is a reasonably vaccinated city, it's not like Cardinals games only feature fans from the St. Louis metro area. <laughs> right. In fact, it is mostly not like that. Right. And I, I know Southern Missouri in particular is is one of the hot spots of the country. Yes. So that's that's kind of the the not great part of the vacation, but I really, you know, it was very nice to get away. Uh I was I don't think my uncle and my dad listen to this podcast. Sorry, Kevin. Uh t- two listeners you're not going to get. I don't think they listen to podcasts to be honest. Could you could you send me their emails after the show? <laughs> but uh the first day I was at my uncle's house, I woke up to the sound of water kind of rushing around. And the tank that contains their well water, he lives a little bit south of the city in a place called House Springs, Missouri, population not many, uh, had burst, the tank had burst. And so we didn't have water for a day. And then for the rest of the week, the carpet in the bedroom that I was staying in was a little bit damp. So you had to play some jump from dry spot to dry spot. Uh, So, you know, I would not say it was, in that sense, the most relaxing vacation, but it was a very relaxing vacation just in terms of, like, getting away and not doing too much. Like you said, it's really nice to just go on vacation and not do things. It was so nice. I came back feeling, like, so kind of refreshed and energized. I I know the times are rough, but if you can take a break at some point and just just a mental health break, I think everybody needs one. It was very nice to just do nothing. And again, like, my wife's sister did very well for herself. It's a big big like we basically you're staying at their house but we basically felt like we had an apartment right you have a wing like, yeah yeah we had a wing um there's like a pool in the backyard it was just nice like, i think they could uh think they could pretty, keep us we there pretty, that sounds great yeah it were pretty we were pretty bougie for a week but it was nice i'm not gonna lie um what about work-wise what are you up to 
I spent a lot of time this week just looking at Matt Whistler, which is, you know... <laughs> I saw that. It was a really fun piece. It was very good. That's, I, I would say, when I when work's going well, you're doing a lot of looking at one player who you can't figure out and then figuring out what changed. When work's going not well, you're doing that, and then you're like, ah, I didn't have anything to say, so I'm going to write a throwaway right. nonsense piece about someone else. But I really enjoy these like completely slider-only guys that didn't really exist in baseball until the last... What three or four years? Yeah, I mean, you know, Luke Gregerson's the originator. That's um, true. Oh yeah, so you, you were, know, yeah, you were yeah. in on this early. Yeah, Luke Gregerson was there, and 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 I I I wish I talked to you. So the term that I used, and I got it from AJ Hinch because he was the first person I heard use it, is that he's a slider monster. And and Def Whistler is definitely, without question, kind of the ultimate slider monster these days. Yeah, it is crazy. He throws a slider ninety percent of the time. Mm-hmm. That's that's just such a high percent of the time, and. It does feel like those guys are much more vulnerable to just getting a little out of their mechanics. Yeah, it's 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 the slider can be a more difficult pitch just because you can um, underwork it and end up with like a slurvy thing that hangs. Yeah, or or you can overwork it and then you end up with something that doesn't move much and it, it becomes yeah more and of a, a, more of a too slow cutter, if you will. Right, and not everyone can just be Jacob the Grom and throw at ninety two and it's no, just, just a fine can. cutter. Right. Yeah, if you're throwing the, the low to mid-80s slider, it just feels like you're, and you're not just mechanically pristine. It feels like it's really vulnerable to just backing up and going crazy. I I find that actually really interesting because you can look at the aggregate metrics and the, you know, release points and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. It's really hard to pick out guys that just don't have the consistency to throw sliders. And it's also really interesting to see how much the distribution can change just from like small arm angle changes. I don't. I wonder how much teams are working because look, the the kind of like look at their numbers and figure out who's going to be good. The zip style projections are teams have people who do that, but they also pay Dan for projections. The mm-hmm. how do we tweak this guy mechanically? I think is it's hard to write about because teams aren't talking. But right, yeah, for sure. It is quite uh, fascinating when you can, when you can kind of get into that. Right, and, and you know, and I think it's every te- most teams, the overwhelming majority of teams, like have um, multiple um, edgetronic cameras set up, and and they're looking at that stuff on a on a frame by frame basis, and by frame by frame, you're talking about three to six hundred frames a second basis, um, and trying to figure out. And in kind of like Whistler's case, obviously, he was really bad, and then he's really good. Like what's happening? Like yeah. why? And then they can, you know, with those edgetronic cameras, which are kind of phenomenal, they can, you know, literally see exactly where his fingers are and exactly when they're coming off the ball to, you know, millisecond precision. Right. Um, and, and try to make those kind of adjustments. That was the rise of super slow motion photography happened while you were on the Astros, right? Yeah, the Astros were the first team, I and mean, they were literally um, the cameras. They were literally buying the cameras as well as lenses and, and all sorts of um, accoutrement uh, off eBay because that was the only place you could get them. It's lucky that uh, it created COVID because you cannot buy anything made of glass anymore online. It's all <laughs> exactly. so backed up. Exactly. But like for a long time, like if you were getting into Edgetronic, like just buying them off of eBay, like they were, you know, and, and Edgetronic finally recognized the fact that there was a sports market here and, and ramped up production and and have I've, and good for that, made money off of this whole thing. But um, for a while... Um, we're buying a tremendous amount of stuff in in Japan and having it shipped. Did you have a uh, an eBay procurement guy? Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It would be such a strange job at a team. Yeah. I, I, what do you do? I buy cameras on eBay and lenses and lenses. Like cameras and lenses. I buy cameras and lenses on eBay. <laughs> but Oh, now I'm talking about Astros and cameras. I'm going to get a bunch of shitty tweets from people. Damn it. Uh, that's up every time. That's my bad. <laughs> but I, I do find that kind of stuff like really it's hard to write about. I it's a lot easier to write about you know what teams need to do to improve and that kind of stuff. But it is yeah. really, really fascinating to at least think about. And when you can actually get an article out of it, it always feels good. So so what's what is the difference in Matt Whistler? Like why is he good again? Basically, he had his grip wrong and. He was doing the overcooking that you were talking about. So his his grip, his arm was a little bit too close to over the top. Not that close to over the top. He's still three quarters, but he was mm-hmm. too high, and it was leading to him just overcooking it, spinning it, and just throwing a lot of sliders that backed up. And because of that, then when he got down in the count, he was really afraid to go in the zone because he was worried. I, this is me projecting now. I don't actually know, but he when he was behind in the count. He was really afraid to go in the zone with his slider, and gotcha. that that's not good. You don't want to do that because when when batters are ahead in the count, and you throw them a slider out of the zone, they don't swing a lot. You know the the count does not. They yes. they're looking for mistakes. Yes, you have to challenge in the zone if you're going to be a big league pitcher. Yeah, particularly when you're down in the count. Like when you're ahead, fine, you can you can nibble and fish. But he he was having real trouble with. He got down in the count, and either he challenged them, and a lot of his backed up. And look, batters are smart and great athletes and if they're going up against matt whistler who throws 90 percent sliders and they're ahead in the count they're just looking for an 80 mile an hour pitch that backs up over the plate and mm. when when he obliged them it was not pretty you know how people say like oh home run luck is home run luck it was not right <laughs> right this, this was not home run luck like right they're whacking balls he was, when he gave someone something to hit and they were sitting on it they just crushed it and they will when you throw them an 80-mile-an-hour ball that doesn't break much. Mm-hmm. It's like a batting practice fastball almost, or a batting practice cutter or something. It's just not a not a hard pitch to hit, and that was his big problem. And <laughs> it is most in-season adjustments, I don't think, go from my slider is just getting whacked out of the park to no one hits it. But And probably his is not actually this good, but certainly it looks cool when it works. How often do you like start thinking about a piece and then realize you don't have enough? I feel like this happens to me a lot where I'm like, yeah, oh, I see what this guy's doing. I'm like, well, oh, now I see what he's doing. It's really just two paragraphs. Yeah, a lot. I feel like I mean, this is getting very inside baseball writing. So apologies, listeners to the podcast, but I just like talking about it. I feel like a, there's always the urge to stretch it a little farther. <laughs> like, right. Like, oh, I have four paragraphs and if I can make it six. Right. Do you do stare at your word count? No. I, I think it's it's a bad habit. It's a shitty habit. I... Like, I'm like, oh god, I'm, I've I've made my points. I'm at seven twenty. You know, I just uh... yeah. I do that when I don't have a point. <laughs> and so if I'm like in a like if I'm not finding something interesting to write about, and I have eight hundred and fifty words. Then I'll sit there for 20 minutes and be like, yeah, I could expand this part and like talk about some right. stuff I looked at that didn't work. People love reading about things that you didn't find, right? Yeah. But I have kind of the opposite problem usually, which is that I just, I'm very wordy by nature. Yeah. And so I'm like, 
Meg, I'm, I'm going to write like a 750 word thing. I, I don't know if it's going to be long enough for an article. She's like, Ben, this is 2300 words. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I have the opposite. I'm like, you yeah, know, what's going on with this guy? Ah, fastball command improved. Good hitter. Yeah. Start, st- started swinging more. It's pretty good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's time for a moment of culture, Ben. Do you want to go first? I do. And I'm curious how how much this will connect with readers, but I have been playing a new game on Steam quite a bit recently. Okay. And culture, the stretch. It is called Storybook Brawl, and it's a game where you buy fairy tale characters and then battle them against other teams' fairy tale characters in like a 20 minute long game. So it's, it's an auto battler. I don't know if you know of that genre. Oh, like the auto chess games? Yeah, it's an auto chess game with a just goofy, whimsical theme. Oh, wait, but it has cards. Uh, yeah, but you battle the cards instead of the, the pieces. I mean, whatever, oh, they're just little characters. I like cards. And they, you, you put cards in a game, I, I get excited. They don't persist between games or anything. It, it's very much an auto chess game, but instead of like looking like it's chess pieces, it looks like little uh, cards, and you can collect them and upgrade them in-game. I find it very satisfying to be able to do something like that that is pay attention for 30 seconds and then don't have to for a minute. Uh, it kind of has a Hearthstone feel, but it's all auto battlers. Yes, exactly. It has a Hearthstone feel that is all auto battling. That's a good way of describing it. It's I'm also watching the, I'm watching the trailer right now. Yeah, it's also very nice that uh, it's bite-sized time chunks. I right. have not played a lot of video games recently. I know you have, which I'm jealous of because I'm really bad at just saying like I want to sit here and play Ghost of Tsushima for two hours. Mm-hmm. I like spending twenty minutes time chunks goofing off like i've written an article and i want to spend 20 minutes before i look over it or i know i need yeah. to go somewhere in 30 minutes and i have some time but i can't really get into a a big you know triple a studio game that quickly because i can't really play a quick hit of it i'm just not good at that and so this has been scratching that itch for me uh it is a little rough around the edges still definitely an early access and uh, right, and and people know like early access is when people release games on Steam that are not done yet. Yeah, um, and it's and definitely kind of, not done of, yet. And kind of let the beta testers. It's kind of make it's like a free beta test, and, it, and this is free. It's free to play. Yeah, free to play, and I don't know. You can you get characters that like give your the the cards you're buying like extra powers and different types. Right, I'm sure there will be some in-app purchases. Oh yeah, but I I can't bring myself to make any in-app purchases yet for a game that is still in beta testing but they want people and i'm obliging with that i've had a lot yeah. of fun playing it recently and i don't know how long it'll last but right now that is what i'm doing for culture it is not very cultured story brook brawl and that's available on steam and it, right now it's in early access but it's free so you can just download and play it how about i'm gonna talk about i'm gonna talk about a television show and uh it's on the vice network but i've been watching it on hulu so i have no ads and uh, and i recommend doing that because it seems like they have a lot of ad breaks um but it's called the devil you know it's about weird it's about weird is really way underselling it's about really bad neighbors um but we were only uh on the first season and mostly done with it but it is the story of uh documentary so not a story it's it's real life right um in a small suburb outside of winston-salem north carolina and maybe i connected to it because i've spent a decent amount of time in winston-salem north carolina um watching minor league baseball in Winston-Salem and or uh, seeing college baseball at Wake Forest University, right? And so I kind of know the area. Um, it's in a, a suburb of Winston-Salem, 
where uh and, and Winston Salem is um a town in decline, if you will. Twenty first century victim of capitalism, let's just call it one of those cities, you know what I mean? So Is it not getting enough like run over from the research triangle? Yeah, no, it's a little too far, right? It's it's not it's a little too far for that kind of run over. And um, you know, obviously Winston Salem was, you know, founded on the tobacco industry, which ain't what it used to be. Um you know, not for bad reasons, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's a very declining town and, uh, and people are struggling and, and, you know, they have, you know, real drug problems and, and things like that. And, um, it's about a person who lived in, you know, a, a seemingly kind of tepid suburban middle-class neighborhood. Um, and he was kind of the guy that a lot of other troubled late teen early adults looked up to because he was kind of the craziest one right he was mm-hmm. the, the the crazy wild leader um you know and he, he kind of he changed his name to pazuzu Ooh. which is you know which is the name of the the demon and the exorcist he claimed to be a satanist and so some of it kind of like was for you know affectation you know tattoos on his face he filed his teeth into points <laughs> um just like and a real shitty neighbor um <laughs> Who the police just kind of like—that's part of the story—is like how little the police did here, because they just kind of put him off as like a shitty neighbor, right? And he was a bad dude. He's a bad dude, and like you know, he got you know arrested once for for assaulting his own mother, and the, you know his mom didn't want to press charges, and all kind of went away, blah blah. But it turns out that he he also was killing people, like literally murdering people. Wow. Um, and and more than one and it, it probably could have been prevented had the police cared more about him just not seen him as the pain in the ass guy down the street and it's kind of fascinating like, where it's happening and there's also kind of this overwhelming arc in the story as well beyond the crazy guy killing people of just of this town um and 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 how affected the the people let's just call it like kind of the 1825 range at this point and, and um and like how much uh, the drug problem has really uh, put its tentacles into this town. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of both opiates and heroin, um, which are both really bad things to get into. And um, it's really well done. I found that a lot of the vice productions are very well done. It's, it's been really fascinating, compelling, and, and a really interesting story. And I guess there's another one after. There's like another season with another story I don't even know about yet. Um, but it's on Hulu. It's called The Devil You Know. I recommend it. It's not feel-good programming by any stretch. Um but it is it is kind of a fascinating story. And I think it's I don't know. I think it's good to be reminded of the shit's going on in the world because it's not good. Kevin, can I get a last bonus moment of culture in here? Yeah, I'll, there's always time for this. Who's gonna die in the White Lotus finale? Oh my god! So I'm glad you say this. So we talked about the White Lotus in a, in a previous episode. Um, we just caught up last night. Uh, we caught up two nights ago. So we caught up last night. The White Lotus remains eh, maybe the best show on television. It's fantastic. And again, and I will say this once again. They need to just cancel the Emmys forever and just give a big one to Jennifer Coolidge and never give another Emmy away again. She's been <laughs> unbelievable in this show. Um, and they've done an excellent job over the last two episodes. If you're not watching White Lotus, say you should, but the, 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 the setup is like it starts with a guy in an airport and someone saying, oh, where'd you stay? And he's like, oh, I stay at this nice resort in Hawaii. And, and oh, someone just got killed. Someone just died there. He's like, yeah, they're loading the coffin onto the plane right now. And cut to the week before of everyone arriving at this at this very rich person's resort in Hawaii, and you don't know which one's going to end up in the coffin. And they've the last two weeks they've set up where 
could be any walk away going man a number of these people could be dying at the end of the show and some of them might be murdered and some of them might do something to themselves and there's also people who just might die right yeah um i don't know and i can't wait to find out it's such a good good show and i i kind of laughed and enjoyed it even more when i read i was reading an interview with um michael white who's the writer and and director of the show um and there's these there's this very very um very rich very dysfunctional family that's one of the the, the character groups of the show um and um the wife is a very powerful tech executive um not really sure what the husband does he's got money too and they have a a, a daughter there with her friend and they're both just amazing characters also miserable but yeah miserable and always you know complaining um about everything and making points about how awful the world is and i read this interview and he pointed out have you ever heard of a podcast called red scare no so red scare is a podcast that is um kind of adjacent to like chapo trap house and come town and stuff like that and it's, okay. it's or two women and they're talking and it's kind of politics and culture stuff and those two girls are based on that podcast based on the two women on that podcast Got it. And have, and as soon as I, I've listened to that podcast at times, and listen, and as soon as they said, that, I was like, "Oh my god, that's amazing! It's so right. That's exactly them." Um, and every character is so well written. But I, yeah, it's it's they we're setting up like the, the, Sunday's the last show, right? That's yeah. it, right? Yeah, I, I I any number of people. Like I I can you can literally count one, two, three, four, five, six. I just off the top of my head, it's like six people who could reasonably die. Yeah, I. I am impressed how they've expanded the number of people who can die. Like, I think this won't be a spoiler at all. After the first 10 minutes of the show, you thought it was very likely to be the first guy's wife. Yes, that's what you assumed, right. And they've... Because he's not with us because he's in the airport, not with his wife anymore. Yeah, and they've just masterfully expanded it. It's... I am so, like, caught... I'm so bought in on this show now. I'm bought in. And they're all horrible people. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's part of it. (laughs) <laughs> there are yeah there are not very many good people in this show no there are not very many good people in maybe this some show. redeemable people but yeah i think that's a good way to put it there are some redeemable people but not a lot of good people yeah. so that's your third part if you've not started the white lotus which is on hbo start it now and you can be all cut up by time the final episode arrives sunday night um well i think we're done here ben i think we are this was i a... want to thank thank you for for filling in and coming in to co-host this week Always enjoyable. And thank you to Susan Saucer for coming on talking to the Giants. Thanks to Laura Stevenson and the great folks, especially Joe Steinhardt at Don Giovanni Records for providing us with music. And we'll talk to you next week. Nothing creeps like measure time. And nothing brings you to your knees. Quite like it when it's right The shaking ground Won't spare you back out No ringing bells And we can only blame ourselves No one teaches you to breathe said
Yeah. 